0: Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires Limitless possibilities. The Limitless podcast was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community that show that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsalais. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast.
1: I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. Thank you for joining us again this week. I have Keisha back with me as my co-host today. Hi, Keisha. Hi, Sean. How (laughs) are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm really good I'm especially good because you have brought us another amazing guest speaker and topic and so I'm just gonna let you tell our listeners what we're talking about today and who we're talking to.
2: Okay so um, this particular person is uh, I met in a very special time in my life when I was training where we were both training at the Seeing for our guide dogs and uh, to, to be matched and trained up and do all the guide dog stuff so it was uh an emotional time a a roller coaster and you get kind of tight the with the seeing eye class that you're with when you're doing those three weeks just so uh this guest is also really a very very interesting person i'll let her explain why um but welcome sarah sarah kane to the podcast (laughs)
3: welcome sarah thank you and it's so great to have an excuse to catch up with you again keisha yeah so my name is sarah kane um i recently graduated from my undergraduate degree at the university of pennsylvania where i got a bachelor's in physics for the concentration in astrophysics and i am off on my way to the university of cambridge um to get my phd in astronomy as a marshall scholar um my uh, my research primarily involves the structure and formation of our very own milky way galaxy um, but I think my my side gig interest might be of particular interest to this audience because I'm also interested in how we can represent data as sound rather than as plots or images as is typically done um, and that's a field
2: called sonification in which I'm pretty involved oh my goodness okay so, so that's the cool those are a lot of cool things in a row um, first of all Cambridge like as in England? No. Yes, Cambridge as in England. Oh my god! <laughs> so, are you going to England then? To obviously, obviously, you were, right?
3: Yeah. As of as of September, I will be moving to England. So, if you think it was hard to coordinate the time zone difference, now just wait.
2: but <laughs> oh, well, um, we caught you while you're still close to home. But that is very exciting, and. Just for those of us, like myself, who don't know what it means, what does it mean to be a Marshall Scholar?
3: Yeah, so the Marshall Scholarship is a scholarship given by the British government to American citizens to study for a postgraduate degree at any university in the UK. Um, Usually to between 35 to 50 Americans per year. There are 40 Marshall Scholars this year. Um, and generally, it's meant to foster close ties between the U.S. and U.K. Um, you know, they talk about Marshall Scholars being a sort of informal ambassador between the U.S. and U.K.
1: Wow! Wow! Well, congratulations. That's, That's quite an honor. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Can we back up a little bit? How, you know, science is kind of visual and maybe tell our listeners a little bit about your visual impairment. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Let's go start there.
3: Yeah. So I have albinism, um, which is an inherited condition that causes a lack of pigment in the hair, skin and eyes, which causes an underdevelopment in the eyes. Um, So I am legally blind. I do have some remaining vision. Um, Generally, it's enough to read, you know, for context for people with, Remaining vision, it's enough to read maybe like seventy-two point font in a distance of like four to six inches from my face. Um, so I, I do still have remaining vision. My distance vision tends to be much more minimal, um, thus uh, why a guide dog was a great choice. And I also tend to be very photosensitive. So in bad
1: lighting, uh, my remaining vision goes to virtually no vision. So can you see stars? Can you see like? You know, astronomy type things.
3: No, this is something I get asked often because I think a lot of people, when they think about how they became interested in astronomy, you know, my peers and whatnot, they they talk about looking up at the night sky and and wondering. Um, and that was not an experience I had. I cannot see the stars in the sky. Um, uh, for me, it was actually, and I'm gonna I'm gonna totally um, show what a nerd I am here, but it was <laughs> actually. A uh, a childhood and and now lifelong a love of Star Trek that <laughs> taught me to astronomy. I love um, it. That is so cool. I I really love Star Trek. I, I think I probably can't even put into words how much I love it. Um, and also as a as a bonus, um, Star Trek has uh, over its run not one but two um, blind characters, both of whom are engineers, and one of whom who is on. A very recent show um, is also played by a blind actor, Bruce Horak, who I believe is also from Canada. Oh, yeah. And I was, in fact, so enamored with his character that I managed to find his email and I sent him an email and he responded.
2: Oh, my goodness.
1: That's cool. <laughs>
2: wow. Um, so that's, that is like kind of your start out on how you got into the, into this field of science.
3: Yeah, started with with Star Trek in copious quantities. Um, (laughs) And then I started, you know, watching documentaries. Um, There are some great ones by like Carl Sagan. He's a great, very soothing voice. I think I remember like falling asleep listening to the documentaries when I was, you know, in elementary into middle school, which maybe isn't a ringing endorsement, but um, definitely piqued my interest. And uh, it was off to the races from
2: there. So we did a little bit of research about you. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> and like I, I remember talking to you, but when I was when I was speaking when we were training, you had just begun your program, and it looks like a, a lot of your achievements that we were able to find while stalking on the internet have happened in the last couple of years. Um, and I was really impressed. Uh, uh, seeing that you you presenting in, in Seattle for like. I, I can't remember the name, of like the association's actual name, but like the big convention that you were at.
3: Yes, yeah, the American Astronomical Society is uh, um, the big like professional astronomers' society in the U.S. Um, and I was I was fortunate to get to present some of my results there this January um, in Seattle, which was a very fun trip in and of itself, and a trip that my
2: my guide dog I think enjoyed as much as I did. That's um, so great. He's a good traveler yeah no doubt i bet i bet she is um so okay so i'm always curious like i always find it really inspiring to talk to visually impaired individuals who are who are in stem field because just because i i guess i grew up like i, I you know i had i definitely had supportive people and i definitely believed that i could do like whatever i wanted to try to do it might take work but i i always had a little bit of a thought like i don't know if how like accessible stem is and it was always a little bit like uh, like a a little bit of a barrier just thinking about it even just being like because i always like found math and uh quite challenging with graphics and diagrams and stuff like that um and so when i hear about adaptations i think it's so interesting so i would love to ask you a bit uh, uh just to describe a bit about the adaptations that you have used to make your work and research more accessible to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think we have um, like this
3: cultural misconception about what being an astronomer looks like. You know, we have this image of some person looking through a telescope, and of course that's not something I could do. Um, But in reality, most astronomy and astrophysics these days um, is basically a type of glorified data science. And so when I go into work, I go and I sit at my computer and I I program um, basically all day unless I'm writing something up about what I've been programming, Um, and a lot of coding can be made accessible. So you know there are you know I want to be quite frank and say that there are accessibility challenges still. so for instance a lot of people program in something called Jupyter notebooks these are a place where you can program in in python which is the language that a lot of astronomers use um, to program and do data analysis unfortunately Jupyter notebooks are pretty much a non-starter with screen readers but um if you program in what we call the command line in ipython just a different place you can do your programming a little less popular but still totally doable that you can do. And so it's a matter of knowing what is or isn't accessible. And, I'm, um, and, and I think some of that is having someone to help you navigate the landscape. And unfortunately, I didn't feel like I had that when I started my degree. And so I was a screen reader user. Um, when I started uh, university, I, I used JAWS. And then I took my first programming class the uh, spring semester of my first year. Everyone was using these things called Jupiter notebooks, and I went, "Oh my goodness, where am I? Like, what what is it reading to me? What's happening?" Yeah. And because I had remaining vision, um, have and and because there was no one around me to you know at Penn, there aren't a lot of blind students. Um, in fact, at the time of my graduation, there were no other blind students. There was no one to tell me, like, "Hey." you just program in the command line like here it'll work um and so i switched to using screen magnification which was my version of a workaround that's just one example of things but you know um there are still challenges but i think they're not quite as insurmountable as as people tend to think given again this conception of astronomy as this purely visual field of looking through a telescope no one looks through telescopes anymore you know you pull the uh a csv that spreadsheet of uh, of data from the telescope but i don't even work with images from telescopes at all
2: wow that's cool like to tell okay telescopes like you can they just capture this data program it through and it comes out as a set and that's just like okay that blows my mind i know that to you
1: yeah (laughs) somehow (laughs) that means something to you all those numbers (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I imagine it must have taken a long time to learn how to like uh, well, and I'm sure that's all part of the program, like part of the the education that you received, but um so it sounds to me like you had a lot of trial and error, okay? Eh? Definitely. I would I would definitely say that. Um would you say like did you ever have like when you were going into the field, um did you have any like role models who were visually impaired who who maybe were in the STEM field that like you kind of looked to or did you kind of have to write the book for yourself so to speak yes.
3: yeah um I, i'm fortunate to know now that there are you know to be quite frankly there's a relatively small number of other bvi astronomers out there um but they exist at the time i started i actually really was under the impression that there is no one else out there and that i was the first um and so i did feel like i was writing the book Um, and that, you know, that's inherently a little bit frightening.
1: Um, I'm curious what, what reaction you had from your family and teachers when you wanted to go into science, like, because I imagine even just, you know, getting, taking the courses you needed to get into university, into science, there would have been some barriers. So like, what kind of reaction did people have?
3: Um, I, I think. I'm very fortunate, and I think probably one of the only reasons I was able to do this is because my parents have always been my staunchest supporters and, um, like, so um, encouraging of me to do anything, you know, whether it was going into science or, you know, I lived on a very quiet street, you know, no cars around, and they would they would let me go out on a bicycle, which I think a lot of parents are of blind children wouldn't just be like, all right, have fun, you know, don't don't wander onto a busy road. Um, then... So, you know, I, I attribute a lot of that to my parents being willing to just, not just willing, but so supportive. Um, and so when I encountered people for the first time who I felt like maybe didn't expect the most from me, mm-hmm. um, even if they didn't outwardly say anything, which again, I was fortunate of, I, I felt like I had the support to fall back on um and some stubbornness deep in my bones. <laughs> um and uh and to be quite frank i think um that stubbornness and almost uh that that need to prove myself pushed me to do better than i might have otherwise um i wanted i think in a lot of ways to prove people wrong about the fact that they might have expected less of me yeah
2: i can relate. <laughs> i think we can all relate to that yeah. in this in this yeah. group <laughs> yes just you just have to have that like determination and just like no like because if we believed everything that we were told we we probably wouldn't do a lot of the stuff that we do so yeah mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah I'm really curious about this sonification this whole translating this numbers to sound or however you described it can you talk a little bit more about that yeah yes oh my goodness oh my, my. oh I would
3: so probably talk about that yeah. So oftentimes, and again, this is still the case in astronomy and the sciences in general, when we have data, we represent it visually as a plot or a graph or a picture, depending on on what you're showing. Um, and uh, I think one of the things I'd like to emphasize is that in a lot of aspects, that is inherently an arbitrary choice. That is how we choose to represent the data. The data itself is not, you know, it's a For instance, like I said, like a spreadsheet of numbers it is not inherently visual. Um, And so it feels intuitive to us that we put it in a a graph or an image, but um, that is just as arbitrary and just as valid a choice as representing that data as sound. Um, And there are a lot of reasons we might want to represent data as sound, one of them being Of course, accessibility, but also the human ear is more sensitive, for instance, to a lot of changes than the eye. So you might notice changes in the data more easily if you are listening to it. Um, We have a lot of reason to believe that sighted people just enjoy sonifications, too. They like the sound representation of the data. Now, how we represent the data as sound um, varies a lot by uh, what type of data we are looking at. So, for instance, a line graph um, is sonified quite differently from, for instance, a picture. And one of the things we talk about very often in the sonification community now is this issue of standardization. Often when you have sighted children or, you know, let's say teenagers and you hand them a graph, they can figure out what the graph says um, because we have certain standards that people understand for how graphs work. Um, That's something we don't have quite yet in sonification because it's still a a growing field. And then once we have those things, um, you know, we need to teach them. No one, you know, again, if you hand a sighted child, a graph of like, I don't know, population of the U.S. over years or something like that, and they're five years old, they won't be able to read it because even though, again, this visual representation of data Feels intuitive. It is, in fact, something that children are taught, Um, and so again, we would need to teach people how to read sonification, so to speak. Um, But there are a lot of reasons, as I mentioned, that that would be something we would want to do.
1: Is there a way that you can send us some little sound clips or something that we could include in the podcast? Because I'm, and if not, even just for us to listen to, because I'm so curious (laughs) like what does it sound like. (laughs) is it like absolutely (laughs) is it like music like what does it sound like
3: yeah so there are there are roughly like two categories you know like ones for public outreach which sound often very musical and then ones that are for more like scientific work for instance um like james webb the the telescope there are these like public images that are very pretty um and sonifications of that sort of image that's meant to you know inspire awe they tend to focus very much on making it very pretty and, and musical whereas something that's used in research not grading on
2: the ear but isn't musical in the same way mm. so is it is it like a software then that, that is specifically designed to do this function
3: yes and no again because things aren't standardized people often use different software to do different things so the project i know the most about and have been the most involved in is a project called astronify which is a software. Um, it's made by wonderful people over at the Space Telescope Science Institute, um, uh, and um, it's you know a software. You run it in Python, actually. So again, this programming language that astronomers use. It's meant to be usable to astronomers with the tools they typically use. Um, but you know that only works on a certain type of astronomical data and not on everything. Um, so you know. I guess, uh, different tools
2: for different data sets. I'm just kind of curious about, like, currently, like, are you, now that you're graduated, are you working in a lab right now? I don't know if that's the right terminology. Please correct me. Um, Like, what, what no, are no, you, that's Yeah, what are you up to right now? And do you use, like, sonification in your daily research or daily work? Um,
3: yeah, so I, I am lurking in Philadelphia for the summer. My, uh, my PI, the principal investigator, the professor I've been working with for a while, um, Jane at, at Penn was nice enough to let me linger for the summer. So I'm working for him for the summer before I start my PhD and then I'll be researching for my PhD supervisor. Um, I don't tend to use sonification much in my day to day. Um, part of that is because a lot of the types of data I use, there aren't yet sonification packages available to do those things. Um, you know, I'm hoping to see that change with time. Um, I think, as you might have noticed, uh, since you poked around into my background on the internet, um, sonification has been gaining a lot of traction <laughs> recently, um, and uh, and so I think with more interest, there will come more
2: tools. Well, one thing I noticed that was mentioned, yes, while poking around uh, about you on the internet, was how like there is potential for solidification to be useful in even O and M or like um, other sciences for sure. I mean, dare I even say maybe like architecture for like adaptive? I don't know. Like I'm just urban planning. I'm not really sure. Like it's, it seems like it could be transferable. Is that correct? You know, I don't want to speak outside my expertise
3: here because I really do more or less have a background in astronomy and astronomy sonifications. Mm But, you know, I think there's potential for sonification to be useful anywhere that we use representations of data. Um, And maybe that's, you know, in tandem with tactile representations of data. For instance, I have some like wonderful 3D prints of galaxies that I really enjoy showing people. In fact, um, they're available for free online. There's uh, an organization called Glass Education um, makes them uh, cool. incredible 3D prints. And, you know, you can just download them for free. Um, if you happen to have a That's 3D cool. printer laying around. <laughs> wow.
1: That'd be awesome. I'm curious... Like, how do other people in the field react to meeting you? (laughs) You know, you're doing an astronomy class or you're doing your, like, just what is the reaction of others? Because I imagine, you know, when you go to these conferences and you're, you're in these classes, you are the only one who's blind probably. And yeah. What is like that people must, it must make them kind of shake their head or, you know, do a double take. Like, did I, she she has a guide dog. What? (laughs) absolutely yeah it's um
3: yeah i think um you know fortunately my department actually at my whole university i think i've become something of a known entity (laughs) um and it's a fairly small department so people know me around there Mm -hmm. um which is nice uh definitely when i went for instance to the american astronomical society meeting um i would say the general response was um maybe shock yeah (laughs) Uh, not necessarily in a negative way. Um, you know, I I've been fortunate that no one has for the most part been particularly unkind to my face for the most part. Um, but uh I would say that people do tend to be fairly surprised. Um, people tend to have questions. Um, and also often people think it's pretty cool. Um, I think uh, I think there's often interest coming from a place of people thinking it's neat that i do what i what i do um Uh, which you know is is you know on one hand nice and of course you know on the other hand i'm sure you guys have fallen into the tap dance of having to explain you know how you do xyz when you can't see Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you weren't necessarily planning on the show and tell it is indeed a tap dance Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, one one of the uh, things that always gets me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm crossing the street or whatever, and someone's shouting at me like, you can go, you can go, and I'll, I'll cross the street and I'll think, you know, <laughs> I can do astrophysics and you think I can't cross oh, the street? Like, yeah. I, know. <laughs> I know,
1: Yes. Yeah. I, it's I very can imagine. <laughs>
2: invalidating of like the, the smart and capable person that, that we are.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Definitely. I'm- you want to hand out your resume in those moments? <laughs> Be like, oh, Do you know yeah, who the, I am?
3: The, the urge to get real snooty. <laughs> you know? Yes. yes, comes <laughs> over me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it it just it's very discrediting. But and what about your guide dog? What are, what is her job? Every I'm no, just kidding. <laughs> what does she do in the lab? Yeah, right. Translating uh, the data oh, for you, good. right? Yeah.
3: Ilana <laughs> is is the star of the department like you <laughs> know, I think a couple of people will be sad to be, see me leave but right. people are going to be heartbroken to see the back of Alana
2: uh, I like, thought, thought. Yeah, one
3: just, of the nice things is uh, you know I just I sit on my computer all day that's my job it's a computer job and, and I, don't, I don't need her to be working that whole time and so you know I'll, I'll take her hardest off and she'll she'll go from undergrad to undergrad and harass them for attention <laughs> um, <laughs> So with with within reason. I, I you know, this I put an, an asterisk on that um the CI trains their dogs incredibly well oh, and along with not actually harassing anyone <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, yeah. very popular.
2: <laughs> no absolutely. Um what would you say is your favorite part about your job about the field and about like what you do? I, I really believe in
3: um the power of science and and to be quite biased, like the power of astronomy um, in particular to inspire this very human sense of awe in us. Um, Everything out there in the universe is so vast, vast beyond our comprehension uh, and so bizarre beyond our comprehension too. Um, And it is... It inspires a sense of smallness in me, um, that is akin to awe, um, and it, it boggles my mind every day that I get to poke away, even if just a little bit at at that vastness out there.
2: Yeah, and just like exploring, uh, like minuscule piece. By minuscule piece into the things that I feel like we don't know. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, I'm very grateful that I get to, I get to do it. What do you think are like the most challenging?
3: Yeah, I you know there are still accessibility challenges. Um, so I've mentioned Jupiter Notebooks. Um, those are those are problems still. That um, those are coding inter- interfaces that are widely used and aren't reader accessible. Um oftentimes there are problems with papers being accessible too. Um, people in, in the science in the sciences often do equations in something called LaTeX, um, which is just like a fancy way to type equations. And unfortunately the PDFs that LaTeX spits out um won't really read the math symbols properly. So that's that's quite frustrating. And then you know people do still communicate their results visually. Um, so you know, and, and there's not tend to be image descriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those things are those things are frustrating. and um, you know i I'm happy to say that the latex people, I can say, are aware of the issue and are actually working to fix it. So that's um, hopefully a temporary problem. That's you know in the works. Um, Jupyter notebooks people are also aware of. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that they're trying to make sense, but they are aware. Um, uh, and then regarding image descriptions, you know, I've I've spoken to people about it, and I've been, you know, I've been pushing for that. Um, I think that's going to take a real field-wide change for that to become the the norm or the industry standard to include image descriptions. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, it is frustrating. Um, frustrating not just papers, but frustrating if you're sitting in a conference, for instance, and you can't, mm-hmm. you know, people are giving talks and showing slides, and they'll be like, as you can see in this graph, and I'll just be sitting there going, "Yeah, what's going on? Um, it's not, as I've said, it's not insurmountable, but it takes work and can be frustrating.
1: So there's a lot of advocacy needed you're you're spending a lot of your time advocating yeah yeah i think you know i've gotten
3: a lot of attention um via the marshall scholarship via you know xyz articles um for doing all of this advocacy and i i you know i'm happy to do that advocacy and i find it very meaningful um but i sometimes wonder whether i did it you know or whether i stumbled into it simply because there is like no other option um mm. you know, yeah to be like, in this field and be blind, do you have to be an advocate?
1: Right. Sounds like you mm-hmm. maybe do. Yeah. Yeah. For and now. Like,
2: you, you're <laughs> in it for the passion of the of the work itself. I I find this is often the case is like you're, you know, what like I remember even being in school is like I, I would be passionate about a certain topic, and then it was often like I would get professors or other students being like, Well, you should talk about like the blind perspective or that. And I was like, That's not like, yeah, I, I'm happy to advocate, but that's not right now what I'm interested in on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like that's that comes up a lot. It's like, oh, the blindness perspective or the disabled perspective. It's like, okay, that's all fine and well. And and here and here we are like a blind beginnings that we do advocate and that's and it's awesome. But some you know, when you're for example, I feel like in your science, you're you're doing it because for the love of science, right? Like the the work that you do, and then I'm I'm sure it can be frustrating when it's like you have to plow through all the other stuff to um to get to your science.
1: Yeah, you didn't necessarily want to be yeah. the first blind astronomer. You just loved astronomy, <laughs> and this was the career you wanted yeah. to pursue. But it comes with all this sort of famousness. That's not the right word, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: uh, to be clear, I am not the first. Um, there are a small handful of us out there. Um, Juan de Díaz Merced is fairly famous, though. Um, there are a couple others, but um, yeah, yeah, I certainly wasn't aware of that when
2: I started.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: there's still a, a large. Sounds like there's still a lot of like kinks being worked out, and and you know a lot of kind of guinea pigging, and it, it. You know, that's I don't know if that's the term, but <laughs> but that you know you just sure that should. kind of thing. Like you're, you kind of have like. I, yeah. When it's a small population like that, I feel like there's a lot of like L and error for sure. Yeah. So what,
1: tell us about your, your PhD. What, what are you going to be studying? What are, what are your, is it, is that all on zonification or what, what is, where are you, where are you headed? What are your big dreams? Yeah. So
3: I'll be at University of Cambridge, um, Trinity college, since I'm told people feel quite strongly about their colleges over there. Um, I'll report back, um, um, and I will, yes, I'll be doing my PhD in astronomy and uh, not in sonification, actually. My primary research are, is not in sonification. Uh, I, I think this often surprises people, again, because uh, sonification is what I get the most attention for, mm-hmm. um, which, again, I think is uh, you know, another artifact of this whole advocacy tie-up here. Mm-hmm. Um, my My primary research is in a field that's very fun to say. It's called galactic archaeology. Oh, um, that. that's so cool. That sounds cool. <laughs> yes, I love to say that. Um, so in essence, those stars linger, they live a very long time on the order of millions, billions of years. Um, and so we can look and find stars that were born very close to the birth of our Milky Way galaxy. Um, and using those as a sort of galactic fossil record we can recreate the formation history of the milky way and because physics is the same everywhere if we understand the mechanics of how the milky way formed that can help shed light on how similar galaxies across the universe formed
1: wow wow
2: What? yeah i'm pretty (laughs) speechless (laughs) that's really cool (laughs) galactic archaeology
1: Ah, okay well that's super cool um are you are you hoping to go to space one day like do you want to oh no okay <laughs> well, I'm a no. like star trek oh you my know. goodness i mean okay
3: if we lived in like star trek era you know yeah. where you could get on a nice starship and everything's relatively safe um <laughs> sure count me in sign me up you know all in all in risk and starfleet the heartbeat.
2: But as things are, I am a scaredy cat and I'll keep my feet on the ground. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. This is fair enough. And, well, I guess I have a question because we were talking heavy duty science stuff and I know that's it's your job, but what do you like to do in your spare time?
3: I I love to read. I really enjoy reading. Um, I am a somewhat voracious reader, mostly science fiction and fantasy, um, though to some extent anything I can get my hands on. Um, yes, I think you could start me on a long tangent right now about my favorite books, but maybe that's a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. Um, I tend to, I tend to be, I, I jokingly say I tend to be pretty boring. I, you know, I'm very happy to go to work and go home and cook dinner and read my book and watch an episode of Star Trek and call it a night. Um, <laughs> and that's
2: my idea of a good day. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. I, I thank you for indulging me in that. Because I just, sometimes I feel like when I meet people who have really cool, like they're, they're really cool, smart, you know, accomplished people. And I'm like, okay, but I want to ask you also, what do you like to, you know, what's your favorite ice cream? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to know, you know, I want to per- get more personal. And, yeah. So thank you for that. Um, I, I guess I, I'm curious too about like what you see Like in the future of your career, I'm like, I know it's kind of a loaded question and life does what life does. But like, what are you kind of what are your hopes like once you're done your Ph.D. even?
3: Yeah, so I'm hoping to follow um, something of like a traditional academic trajectory. So following my Ph.D., I'm planning to apply for what we call like post post postdoctoral research positions. So these would be positions generally at universities where after you have your PhD, you do research, and then you do a couple of those, maybe, um, at different universities, and then you apply for a faculty position, so as an assistant professor. Um, and that's that's generally my goal, what I hope to do following my PhD. I want to do research and maybe eventually teach as a professor as well, um, but I also recognize that the job market in academia is quite competitive these days, so I am...
1: I am ready to keep my options open. Um, Because we, a lot of our listeners are maybe parents of kids who are blind or younger youth themselves. Um, Would you like, what advice would you have for somebody who has an interest in science and is blind? Like, what what would you say to them? Because I feel like they probably hear a lot of comments (laughs) that uh, Yeah. yeah I just I'm just curious now you're you are where you are you've had to advocate the way you have like what would you suggest I think my number one piece of advice would be to really
3: prioritize computer competency above all else or not above all else but very heavily emphasize that um because at least in the type of science I do so much of science is done on computers and so the more capable and comfortable you are with a computer, with a screen reader or magnification, um, the easier you'll find things later. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you can learn to code when you're blind, you know, I like, well, you know, if, even if you're in high school, um, that's a thing you can do. Maybe if we have like parents of elementary schoolers might be a little young to start learning the code, but who well, am I to say that is a thing you can do as a blind person. Absolutely. Um, I would also say, and this is, I think, some, you know, very uh, generic advice, but I think that's because it's good. Um, Good advice is that if you think it's appropriate for you to make sure your Braille skills are um, up to snuff. I think I've had several, you know, older and more experienced blind people tell me within the past year that I should, um, you know, brush off my Braille, which frankly isn't very good. Um, because it would make my programming easier and faster um and i think they're probably right and it's you know i think one of my regrets that i didn't learn braille better as a child because that's you know just a very important universal skill depending on regardless basically of what you want to do mm-hmm. so you know uh, i do think a lot of my work would be easier if i read braille in a way that would make it usable for coding so that would certainly be advice i'd give and beyond that i'd say you know um if you're in the the younger stage of your life and interested in in science in general there is so much out there books and youtube videos crash course is amazing um and you know i have always found these things incredibly meaningful and inspiring without needing to see any of the pictures um because, you know, the way that science communication is often
2: given is explained quite well. Um, and, and you can learn a lot. Crash course is amazing. I I yeah. used that a couple of times throughout my degree when I was really struggling. And it they just really simplify things, even things that are crazy, like statistics and whatnot. So I've
1: never heard of that. I remember
3: like devouring crash course astronomy. There's a whole you know like something like 30 episode i don't know a series on astronomy and i i remember like just
2: yeah plowing my life through it when i was maybe in eighth or ninth grade um. yeah would recommend Sean, It they they cover like a whole slew of different topics and it's really and it's really great yeah like i literally used to google like uh, st- like i don't know statistics whatever term i was studying in the course and then i'd be like crash course and then they usually had a a little mini video about it and they were like really quickly explained in really layman's terms that are really? understand- so like wikipedia but but, but a, like a, a man or, or like a person explaining it like interesting using like like cookies and like yeah. you know simple things that make sense yeah, that's so
3: cool it, it re- much more comprehensible than wikipedia articles can right. sometimes be
1: So yeah. dumbing it down
2: <laughs> exactly and making it kind of fun and and you can you know it's it's pretty hmm. like it's pretty consumable because they're bite sized kind of these videos so it's like it's not you know half an hour of explaining the topic it's like yeah. eight minutes or five minutes oh that's awesome
1: well Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for joining us and sharing your story. And I'm so excited to hear how how things go for you. You'll have to come back when you're an astronomy professor.
3: Yeah, because <laughs> oh, I'm sure you'll have lots have of stories. We a while to go.
2: <laughs> uh, thank you so much for sure. It was it, it you're you're just you're, yeah you're awesome to talk to. And uh, heck, my dog and I might have to come visit you in England. <laughs> Oh, I would love that.
3: My door <laughs> is always open. <laughs>
1: thank you so much for having me, really. Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Keisha, for bringing Sarah to us. <laughs> That's great. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Please share our podcast, like, subscribe, leave us a rating, and join us next time.
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca, and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.